Well, it's been a few weeks, but we're still camped out on one of the mountain peaks of Revelation in John's Gospel, Jesus' Upper Room Prayer. Beloved, here we have an entire chapter. We have 26 verses of our Lord Jesus praying to his Heavenly Father. That's unique. We know that Jesus prayed a great deal during his earthly ministry. Uh, His habit of praying is mentioned frequently by the gospel writers. Luke in particular mentions it. But only rarely are we given a glimpse into the content of Jesus' prayers. And when we are given a glimpse into the content, his prayers are usually pretty short. Of course, sometimes Jesus prayed for hours, all night long even. But ordinarily, when Jesus prayed at length, he prayed alone which makes then John 17, our text this morning, such a remarkable exception. Not only does our Lord pray at length, but he prays in the presence of witnesses. And the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, he brings this prayer back to the Apostle John's remembrance, word for word, just as Jesus promised he would in chapter 14, verse 26. Now, in the prayer's opening... Verses 1 through 5, we learn that the burden of Jesus' prayer is his glorification. Just look at that text. Verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And then verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And then between those two bookends, verses 2 through 4, we have the rationale. For our Lord's Prayer. The reason why, in verse 2, Jesus is granted sweeping authority over all people is so that he may give eternal life to all those the Father has given to him. And the way in which sinners come to have eternal life is by coming to know God, by coming to know Jesus. That's all in the opening five verses. Jesus prays for his glorification. And three weeks ago, that was one sermon. Jesus' upper room prayer, part one. Today, it's part two, as we consider the chapter's remaining 20 verses. And what we see throughout this prayer is Jesus offering up five petitions to his heavenly Father. But Jesus' petitions, his requests, aren't for the world in general. There are five specific requests for his followers. And what are those petitions? Look at your handout in point number two. That God would keep Jesus' followers safe. That Jesus' followers may be one. That God would sanctify Jesus' followers. That Jesus' followers would experience the full measure of his own joy. And that Jesus' followers will be with him forever. And as, as we'll see, these requests are awesomely grounded in God, in the gospel, and in God's intra-Trinitarian love. The love of the members of the Godhead for each other is astonishing, it's astounding. But let me warn us, it's not easy to track through this prayer in a straight line. Uh, Jesus' thought in this prayer isn't linear. Uh, His five requests are all interwoven. And he circles around and around, adding layers and perspectives as he returns to his petitions. So what I want to do for the next 35 minutes or so is trace out Jesus' five petitions. 
And you will definitely need to follow along uh, in a Bible or you're going to get lost. And we have Bibles on the back table that you're welcome to borrow. And if you don't own your own Bible, then just take one. That's our gift to you. I I hope there are Bibles out there. I don't see any. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Uh, There's some over here, maybe. We'll we'll get you some Bibles. Um, That's our gift to you. Just take the Bible home. So the plan is to trace out our Lord's five requests And in each case, we'll note the petition itself. We're going to actually note what Jesus concretely asks for. Second, the reason or the ground or the standard behind his petition. And then thirdly, the purpose of the petition, why Jesus asks for it. To what end? Why is he asking for this request? All right. Our passage starts then on page 1083, John 17. Jesus has just prayed for his glorification. Now he turns from that single request for himself, Father, glorify me, to five petitions for his followers. But before he does that, he first gives the reasons why he's praying for his present and future followers as opposed to other people, as well as why the Father should meet his requests. That's what's happening in verses 6 to 11. Why these particular people and why should God grant his requests? So that's what we're going to look at first. And it's essential to note throughout our Lord's upper room prayer that Jesus' disciples are distinguished from the world. If, if we miss that, we miss everything. Jesus distinguishes his disciples, both present and future, from the world at large. So let's just read through the passage first, verses 6 through 11. Jesus prays to his Father, verse 6, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. And that takes us to the first point in our bulletin, our first way that we can understand this prayer. In Jesus' prayer, our Lord repeatedly refers to a group of specific individuals whom the Father has given to him. He prays only for present and future believers, not for the world. Jesus prays only for his disciples, not the world, for three reasons. Number one, They belong to the Father. Number two, they bring him glory. Number three, he's about to leave them. All right, look at verse 6 again. Jesus prays, I have revealed you to whom? Has Jesus revealed the Father to everyone in Israel or the world without exception? No. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. Those people only. 
And this, of course, harkens back to what we already looked at in chapter 6, verse 37. Let me just read that text. These are very closely aligned. John 6, 37. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given to me, but raise them up at the last day. I want you to follow that glorious progression. God gives his chosen ones to Jesus. And because God gives them to Jesus, they come to Jesus. And those who are given to Jesus and who come to Jesus are omnipotently and eternally kept by Jesus. No one is lost. Jesus will raise every one of them from the dead on the last day. That's his promise. And so the people for whom Jesus now, in John 17, lifts his voice in prayer are those whom the Father has given to the Son. Those same people back in John chapter 6. And of course, this gift was not rooted in anything intrinsic to the people themselves. They were once part of the wicked world in rebellion against God. But God gave them to Jesus out of the world. And then almost as if to make the distinction as unambiguous as possible, let there be no mistake Jesus says in verse 9, I pray for them. I do not, I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. For they are yours. Brothers and sisters, that is the language of possession. These people belong to the Father. But then you'll notice Jesus immediately refines that statement. Look at verse 10. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. Which means the Father's ownership of the disciples is equally Jesus' ownership of the disciples. And so Jesus prays for his followers out of his concern and his love for what is his own. But at the same time, Jesus is assured that this prayer he's offering isn't going to go unheeded by the Father since his followers equally belong to the one to whom he's praying. Verse 9, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. Beloved, we're getting into, into some deep theological waters here, but it's plain to see those words say something about who Jesus is that's of immense significance. Think about it. Any mere mortal, any of us, can pray to God, God, all I, all I have is yours. Right? I mean, we pray that all the time. We sing that all the time. Right? Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my silver And my gold, not a mite, would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall no longer be mine. All I have is yours, God. But no mere mortal can pray, all you have, God, is mine. Jesus prays that. All you have is mine. Jesus is 
pulling back the curtain here. Beloved, I, I pray, may these truths be burned into our remembrance. It's a, it's a very rare and holy privilege to observe the divine Son of God, not only formulating his prayers for an entire chapter, but formulating the grounds for his petitions. He's giving the reasons why he's praying this. And the grounds we read of here reflect the essential unity of the Father and the Son and reveal that Jesus' prayers for his people trace their argument back to the purposes of God in election. God has his people, he has predestined to salvation in Jesus Christ from eternity past. And he saves them. He saves them all. He raises them up from the dead on the last day. And Jesus prays for them. I pray for them because they belong to you, Father. They are yours. There's the rationale. Right? That's, that's how we're to interpret this text, New City, with exegetical precision. But of course, of course, there's a whole Bible balance that needs to be brought to bear to this as well. However much God stands in judgment over the world, he also presents himself as the God who invites and commands all human beings everywhere to repent. He saves his elect out of the world. And so God orders the church to carry the gospel, the good news of what he's accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin, to the farthest reaches of the globe, proclaiming his good news announcement that to rebels, to sinful rebels, the sovereign Lord calls out, Ezekiel 33:11, as surely as I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? And that's true, we, and we gladly affirm that. And yet, however wide the love of God is, and no matter what Jesus' salvific, salvific stance toward this fallen world is, there is still a unique, unique relationship of love and intimacy and disclosure and obedience and faith and dependence and joy and peace and blessing, eschatological, eternal blessing, that binds Jesus' followers together, one with another, and with the Godhead. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's good this day to appreciate afresh the sovereign, electing grace of God in our salvation from sin. It's proper, it's fitting to rehearse to our sinful wandering, proud, autonomous hearts over and over again the fact that we have no claim on God's salvation mercy whatsoever. None. We so easily forget that, don't we? We forget that our salvation from sin is due entirely, entirely to God's unmerited favor, his grace. And I believe nothing makes that clear, it makes the ultimacy of God's grace clearer than the doctrine of election. It's a 
glorious, glorious teaching of Scripture, though it's often misunderstood, often maligned, often disbelieved. So let's just walk down this path a little bit farther. Why does God tell us about his electing love in Scripture? I mean, why does he pull back the curtain that far to say, I have my elect from eternity past who have been predestined to salvation? Like, why, why would he tell us that? What purpose does it serve to know that God says things like Romans 9.15? I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Why does he tell us that? Or why does the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, write this about the relationship between God and his elect in Ephesians 1? For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything, everything, in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Or think of Romans 8, the golden chain of salvation where God traces God's good and saving purposes through five stages, from its beginning in God's mind to its consummation in the coming glory. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification. That's in Romans 8. Why are verses like that in the Bible? Why did God choose to reveal this doctrine to us? To encourage us. To fill us, brothers and sisters, with confident joy. As we know that God is determined to bring all those who belong to him to glory. He has decided it. He has purposed it from eternity past. But it also serves to deeply humble us. The doctrine of election takes away all human presumption, doesn't it? It removes every ground of boasting in ourselves. It cuts the nerve of pride that boasts over others as though our salvation were owing to anything in us. It destroys that cavalier sense of self-reliance that lets us dally in God's presence as though we were an equal partner in this affair of salvation. No, it's not. And this glorifies, it glorifies God. Jesus prays, Only for his disciples, not the world, for three reasons. Number one, they belong to the Father. Secondly, they bring him glory. The disciples constitute a means of bringing glory to Jesus Christ. Jesus explicitly affirms, glory has come to me through them, verse 10b. And I think that means Jesus has been glorified by the degree of obedience and trust that they've exercised towards him. Uh, Of course, the extent to which Jesus has been glorified in the lives of his 11 disciples is still pathetically slim compared to uh, what's coming, right? Just read the book of Acts. But it's infinitely better than he's received from the world. And thirdly, 
Jesus prays only for his disciples, not for the world, because he's about to leave them. Verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. No longer will Jesus be in the world. If the disciples will... The disciples will have to face the world's temptations and the world's hostility without the help of his immediate physical presence and protection. So he prays for them. All right. Just one more thing. A practical take-home new city, an encouragement, I hope, before, before we move into these five requests. Brothers and sisters, if the Son of God himself prays for us. Prayers grounded in the essential unity of God the Father, God the Son, and the eternal purposes of God in election. Then how shameful it is if for us in moments of weakness, in moments of doubt, if we rebelliously question the love of God for his own people. If we question, if I question God's love for me because something's happening in my life. Or, or how, how dare I be anxious or afraid? Robert Murray McShane wrote this. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is Praying for me. John 17 ought to produce in us the deepest and most stable faith. The most adoring gratitude. It's a glorious text to see. Jesus is pulling back the curtain. He prays for his people. Because now we see the followers of Jesus Christ are loved with a special love. A love which distinguishes us from the whole world. Jesus prays for you. Which brings us finally, to the first of our Lord's five petitions. We're going to go through this faster than you might think. Petition number one. Jesus prays that God would keep his followers safe. Verses 11 and 12. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Now, here's the protection. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, Judas Iscariot, so that scripture would be fulfilled. Then again in verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Just very interesting, verse 15. He's not praying, just, just by, give them all a chariot of fire to every Christian to go up to heaven, just, just escape from the, the trials and tribulations. No, they're staying in the world, but Father, protect them while they're in the world. Gives you an expectation of what might be happening in our life. So, this first petition Jesus prays for his followers is that God, his heavenly Father, would protect them while they live out their lives in this world. In particular, Jesus prays that God would protect them from the devil, his, his vicious attacks, his, his subtle seduction. That's what Jesus prays for. What then is the reason? What's the ground or the standard for this prayer? There are two mentioned. First, Jesus is going away, verse 11. 
I will remain in the world no longer, which then leads into verse 12. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name that you gave me. So all along, during his three years of of public ministry, Jesus had protected the disciples himself by that name his father had given to him. That is, by his own being as God. He's talking about the revelation of God himself mediated in the person of Jesus Christ. I protected them while I was with them. The thing is, though, he's about to go to the cross. And after that, he returns to the glory that he had with the Father before creation began. So who's going to protect the followers then? Well, we saw a few weeks ago that that role is assigned in part to the Holy Spirit, the Blessed Comforter, the Paraclete. But here, it's a generalized petition to the Father. Jesus prays, you keep them safe, Father. But just, again, stop and think about that. In this darkest of moments, as Judas Iscariot, even now, is betraying our Lord, as the clock ticks down to Calvary, even so, Jesus' concern is for his followers, not for himself. It's astounding. Though he's hours from death, mere hours from bearing the sin of the world and the holy wrath of God, even so... Jesus begs his heavenly father to keep his disciples safe. And then in verse 16, we have the second reason why Jesus prays for their safety. Because they are not of the world. And the world will trip them up. The world will compromise them. They need to be kept safe from the world, the world to which they no longer belong. And so Jesus prays, Father, you keep them safe. To what purpose? To what end? Look at verse 11 again. It's absolutely stunning. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Father, coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one, as we are one. Jesus prays that his disciples may be one. And in Greek, this clearly does not mean become one, but simply be one. The idea is not that Jesus' followers may progressively achieve unity, not in this text, but simply that they may be a unity continually. It's, I'm pointing that out, it's absolutely crucial to the biblical understanding of this petition to know that Jesus doesn't simply request unity for his followers. No, Jesus requests his Father to grant them protection that they may be unified you see how it works that's that's the flow of it the implication seems to be that dark forces are going to strive to break up this unity protect them so that they may be one in other words the danger is that jesus followers christians will hate each other the danger is that they will divide into schismatic divisions, parties. The danger is that we're going to devour each other. That's all part of the onslaught of the evil one. That's his plan, to bring disunity and disruption to the body of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus prays, Heavenly Father, protect them to this end, that they may be one as we are one. That's Jesus' first petition that God would keep his disciples safe. Petition number two. 
Jesus prays that his disciples may be one. In other words, the purpose, this is tricky, the purpose of petition number one now becomes an independent petition. That's a bit confusing, but it's what Jesus does, and that's what I meant by saying that eventually all these petitions, all these requests get all kind of wrapped up, tangled up together. They're all interwoven. The goal of one becomes an independent petition, and then its goal becomes one of the others. Jesus' thought here is not linear. This has been a difficult sermon to put together. <laughs> it's, it's a whole package that's meant to be consumed in one gulp. All right? Uh, listen to his petitions explicitly. Verses 20 and 21. My prayer is not for them alone. I pr- pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me. We're going to come back to this petition in a few minutes, but let me just put in a side note here, all right? Sometimes we read these sorts of verses that describe, that talk about the unity of the Father and the Son, and we immediately think in terms of what philosophers call ontology. Uh, We start thinking at the very level of being. if, you, if we've been Christians for a while, then we know that there is a great deal of mystery bound up, wrapped up with the very notion of the Trinity. That's one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. In what sense, precisely, is the Father God, the Son God, and the Spirit God, and yet there's only one God? In what sense are they one which is then somehow transferred to us. Look at verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So am I wrong? I mean, I think our first reaction is we read a verse like that, and we start immediately thinking about ontology, but the level of being. We start thinking about the Trinity and the oneness of God and, and, and three persons, that kind of thing. What I want us to see in a few moments is that's not quite what Jesus has in mind. So for the time being, we're just going to accept that Jesus is praying that they will be one as we are one. Just accept that. And then we're not going to define it any further at this point. But notice the reason, the ground, the standard here is actually it's Jesus himself. Just as you are in me and I in you. Verse 22. It's the same kind of thing. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I mean, that, that language is stunning. Well, what, what in the world is going on? What's he praying for here? Jesus lays out the purpose for this petition in verse 23. To let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Or more simply, verse 21, so the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, clearly, on, on one level, that's you're dealing with missions here, right? That's missiological. What I mean is if we really reflect something of the glory of God by who we are and how we love one another in our oneness, then we're gradually teaching the world a bit of what God himself is like. They see us and our love. They know what God is like. It's outward focused. But... The way that it's worded here is fascinating. The way it's worded shows that what Jesus is concerned about is the vindication of God. 
His vindication. It's the vindication of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21 again. It doesn't say, so that the world will believe and thus be saved from their sin. Which is true. That's, that's true and genuine, but that's not what Jesus says. Verse 21, that all there may be one Father, just as you are in me and I'm in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So you see, it's so that Jesus, his claims are vindicated. It's so that the world actually believes the truth about Jesus Christ. Now, that, of course, does save them, but I'm not saying this passage isn't concerned with that. It's just not the way that it's written. It's written in order that Jesus, in his claims, in his coming, in his death, in his resurrection, is vindicated in the eyes of the world. That's what Jesus wants the world to see. What happens less than 12 hours from now? The world despises and hates Jesus so much, it sends him to the cross. He's a criminal. He's a false messiah. But if Jesus' prayer here is answered, if the God the Father answers it, then the world itself will learn that God sent him. That God truly loved Jesus' followers, even as he loved his own precious son. All this is the purpose of the prayer that the disciples may be one. What's his third petition? That God would sanctify Jesus' followers. And we immediately see the reason or the ground or the standard by which Jesus' followers are sanctified. It's the truth. Right? Verse 17, one of the most famous lines in John's gospel. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. You see, to be sanctified in this context is to be set apart for God and for his purposes. And here Jesus prays that God may sanctify, that God would set apart for his own use believers, Christians. And Jesus says the means for such sanctification is the truth, God's word. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And that's an idea often taught in the Bible, but the Bible doesn't always use those precise words. Uh, when Joshua takes over for Moses, he tells the Israelites in Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Then you shall make your way prosperous. Then you shall have good success. Or think of the opening psalm, Psalm 1. What is the righteous person not like? Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. That's what the righteous person is not like. What is the righteous person like? Their delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. See, it's different words, but it's the same concept that we're seeing here in John 17. What does the apostle Paul write to the Romans in chapter 12? Verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How so? Through the teachings of Holy Scripture. Beloved, beloved, if we're going to be sanctified, then we need to be sanctified by the truth of God's word. It must transform what we think, or there's no hope for us. However, in the context of John's gospel, the word 
that's primarily in view is the message of this book, John's Gospel. It's the Gospel, it's the gospel itself. That's the word. Uh, Sanctify them by the truth. That is the truth of the gospel. Your word is truth. And that's made clear by the way that Jesus ends this petition. Look at verse 19. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. And of course, Jesus doesn't sanctify himself by becoming more holy. Uh, He's always been and always will be infinitely holy. What he means is that he sets himself to do his Father's will and his Father's will alone. Which means he readily goes to the cross. However repulsive, however horrifying the prospect is, he goes to the cross. And he does it, he does it, beloved, for the sake of his disciples. For them, I sanctify myself. And the purpose that they too may be truly sanctified. In essence, New City, Jesus is praying, merciful God, heavenly Father, they cannot possibly be sanctified apart from my work on the cross. So for them, I sanctify myself, that they may be truly sanctified. Friends, none of us poor sinners can ever be sanctified. We can never be set apart for God apart from what the Lord Jesus has done first by sanctifying himself. By sanctifying himself, Jesus perfectly obeyed his heavenly Father. And therefore, he went to the cross to bear our sin in his own body on the tree. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And the truth of that gospel is what truly sanctifies us. Petition number four. That Jesus' followers would experience the full measure of his own joy. Look at verse 13. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. And the mind-boggling thing is, as Jesus says that, again, he's he's mere hours from the cross. How, is, how in the world do you talk about my joy? Where does he have, why does he even have one iota of joy? The reason why Jesus wants his disciples to have this full measure of joy, he openly says, is because he's going to the Father in verse 13, and they will no longer be able to see him or watch him or understand him. He's going to be removed. But he wants them to understand that his joy, his joy was in doing his Father's will. That's Jesus' joy, his delight. His pleasure, doing the will of his Father, even if it means going to the cross. That's Jesus' joy. And so he prays, and now I want my joy to be in them, the full measure of it. The full measure, meaning, and this is something that Jesus prays for us, brothers and sisters, our willing, enthusiastic conformity to the will of God. Just as Jesus wholly submits himself to God's will. Moreover, Jesus is saying these things now so that after he's gone, they'll remember what he said and they'll understand why he went to the cross 
and their joy then will be full. They'll under, have a much, much clearer understanding of it. Because you have to bear in mind, things are happening so fast right now for the disciples. Things are so unclear. I mean, they're thinking in political categories, militaristic categories. They're blind to this idea. They have no category for a crucified Messiah. That's going to blindside them tomorrow. But by Jesus saying these things now, by praying these things now, the disciples will soon learn, even if Jesus' words are mysterious to them right now in this moment, that their master really did know what he was doing. And that his path to the cross really was his father's will. And it was for their good. And that it brought him joy to be in obedience to his father. It is accomplished. All that you've given me, Father, to do, to to fulfill... To complete, it is accomplished. It's my joy to do your will, Father. They're going to learn that all the joy that would be theirs is going to spring from what was still to them horribly confusing and disappointing. So then here's the true ground of the disciples' joy. Jesus' own joy in doing his Father's will will be the very basis on which they will come to delight in salvation and share in the heartfelt pleasure of obeying the Father. Jesus prays for that. And this is the joy that he prays for his disciples. Finally, petition number five. Jesus prays that his followers will be with him forever. Remember what we said a few weeks ago about how Jesus praying the promises of Scripture not just just laying back and just passively letting the will of God just kind of direct his life, but actually praying for what he knows is the will of God. Look at that. Praying that his followers will be with him. For He prays for it. Father, accomplish this. Listen to the language of the first part of verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Jesus wants his followers, he wants God's elect, to be with him forever. And he prays to God that it would be so. And this petition, of course, is part and parcel of a massive theme that we see throughout the storyline of the whole Bible. God dwells with his people. God dwells with his people. That's all throughout the Bible we see this. In the Sinai Covenant, Yahweh dwells with his people by manifesting himself in the glory in the tabernacle with three tribes to the north, three tribes to the south, three tribes to the east, three tribes to the west. And he dwells amongst his people. God dwells amongst his people. And then hundreds of years later, the prophet Ezekiel promises that with the coming of the new covenant, he will dwell with his people. He will be their God. And they will be his people in some renewed sense. And the very last book of the Bible, as the new heaven and new earth, the new Jerusalem is described, what do we read? Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. 
And this intimacy is so complete, John writes in verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. God dwells with his people. The ultimate goal is for God to dwell with his people. We need to understand that. That's the ultimate goal. You might recall that earlier in chapter 14, Jesus said he was going away to prepare a place for his followers. 14.3, And if I go, if I go via the cross, via the resurrection, and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Now, Jesus prays to his father, I want them to come and live with me, to dwell with me. Why? What's the ground? What's the reason for this? Verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. We're back to this intra-Trinitarian love of God. Right? But look at the purpose in verse 24. Does Jesus say, this is one of those things that can kind of blindside us. Does Jesus say, Father, I want all these Christians with me in heaven so that they can visit their dead friends and relatives and have lots of parties? No. The purpose is to be with Jesus and to see his glory. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. That's the purpose. It's profoundly Jesus-centered. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Ah, The reason Jesus' glory is being displayed is because the Father has loved the Son long before the creation of the world. And he determined that his son's glory would be displayed. I need to be careful how I say this next part. What I'm about to say is not quite true. uh, Because it's only part of the truth. And if you say only part of the truth about some things, it sounds like you're denying a complementary part. I'm not doing that. Uh, But what I'm about to say is a big deal. And it's something Christians overlook that we tend to ignore. So I'm going to put it antithetically. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we go to heaven not to be saved, but to see Jesus' glory. God has determined, because of his love for his son from before the foundation of the world, that his son's glory will be displayed. Thus, the ultimate purpose of this petition is the glory of the Son. It's the final vindication of the Son, which is achieved because those the Father has given to him will see him as he is for all eternity. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The Son brought the Father's glory on earth And the Father is resolved that all of Jesus' followers will witness the Son's glory forever. That's what he prays. It's a small wonder that Jesus prayed back in verses 4 and 5. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, 
glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And this glory is itself the product of the love within the triune God from eternity past. Christian, I want us to put on our our eschatological sunglasses, right? We're going to be enjoying the sheer delight of forever dwelling in the unshielded radiance of Jesus' glory. That is the long-range perspective that we must never, ever lose sight of, ever. It's having this long-range view that lends stability to our faith. It fortifies it, even if we're going through a devastating ordeal. Jesus wants us to look forward in time, biblical time, and preach to our heart that our ultimate goal is pure worship in the unrestricted presence of God and the unshielded radiance of the glory of Jesus Christ. Believer, are you keenly anticipating this eternal reward? Are you crying out with the believers in every age, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. I can't wait for this day. You see, this is the slimmest, the most inadequate of sketches of Jesus' individual petitions for his followers in John 17. Amen. Let's pray. Father, if the Son of God himself prays for us, prayers grounded in the essential unity of Father and Son and your eternal purposes in election, then indeed how shameful it is for us in moments of weakness and doubt to rebelliously question your love for your own people, for your church, for, for me as an individual. How dare we be anxious or afraid? You have done so much. Lord, we pray, may, may Jesus' upper room prayer Produce in us the deepest and most stable faith, the most adoring gratitude. Because now we see the followers of Christ Jesus are loved with a special love, a love which distinguishes us from the whole world. Jesus has prayed to keep us safe. So we we know that he will keep us safe. May we be one. Lord, sanctify us in accordance with Jesus' prayer. May we experience the full measure of Jesus' own joy as we, like him, obey your will. And come soon, Lord Jesus, that we may be with you forever and behold your glory. Amen.